Oh, my friends, can I get some lights on? I got to see these beautiful faces on this gloomy Labor Day weekend, right? Man, I know, I just wanted to hang out, barbecue all weekend, we got rain. That's all right, because we got the gospel, and that's better news than a sunny day. So, um, hey, I was just thinking about this. I, you know, this is, if you've ever read through a book of the Bible before, the part that we are spending two weeks on is the part you usually skip, right? You're like, okay, yada, yada, yada. Okay, what, where are we getting down to, right? Um, but there is so much preface here for us uh, that is so helpful for us to understand what God's Word has for us today. If you missed uh, being with us last week, let me just give you a quick summary on what we talked about. We talked about the fact that Paul was a man that was called first by God uh, to be with God before he was called to do things for God. Uh, and we called this idea the idea of an effectual calling, that our first and primary call is a call to belong to God. And the more that we focus on the fact that God calls him first and foremost to himself, the more we know what faithfulness looks like as we live out the gospel uh, in our everyday lives. Today, uh, we're going we're gonna to expand on this idea a little bit as we consider Romans 1, uh, 2 through 7. In particular, Paul leads, uh, leads us to consider the larger story of redemption that followers of Jesus have been grafted into. Today we see that this amazing, the amazing thing about the Bible is that it's one cohesive unit. Uh, you may have grown up in a church that did not teach that. Uh, we're going to teach you that here through the, through the book of Romans for sure. Uh, or you may uh, have, have never studied the Bible before. It's going to be a great way to learn to study the Bible as we journey through Romans together. Today we see the amazing thing about the Bible that it's this one cohesive unit, but it's also telling this ever-expanding story and it's the story of a God that comes for his people that he loves so deeply. 20th century British missiologist Leslie Newbegin once said this, the way that we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is part? So I want you to pause and consider that. Uh, you can leave that up there for a second, Kira. What is the life, as you walked in here today, what is the story of which your life plays part? Is it the story of your family? Is it the story uh, of your vocational calling? Is it the story of your career in schooling? Is it, is it the story of your brokenness and pain? It's probably all of those things, but that's not the only part of your story, friend. What is the story of which your life plays part? Who's writing that story? How do I know when I get off script from the story that God has called me into? These are things that we want to consider today. You know, at my house, um, we have, we, we love stories, okay? Uh, and we have an entire bin of dress-up clothes in our house. Anybody else got an entire bin of dress-up clothes in your house? A few of you, yeah, it's awesome. Most of you have little kids. Some of you don't have kids. That's cool anyway. That's great. I love it. I love it. Keep dressing up. It's great. This is Dragon Con weekend, right? Yeah, there's where they're, they're all there. That's where they're at. Uh, you know, princess gowns, lightsabers, my personal favorite, mullets. It seems like we just keep acquiring mullets, okay? It's great. We love costumes. We love having fun in our house. Uh, and as our kids have gotten older, 
I've actually missed those younger days of make-believe because you never knew who you were going to discover around the house. Um, but life has a way of zapping the creativity out of us all, doesn't it? Uh, one of my kids loves big stories. Uh, he was reading all of these amazing stories from a young age uh, to this day uh, that we cannot buy enough books for him. Some of you have kids like that, or some of you are those people, which is awesome. My story is much different. I literally did not read until I got married. That's a true story. I don't know how I got through high school and college. I don't know, but I didn't read uh, until I got married. Um, my, my wife loved to read, and, and, uh, and I, I had to figure out something to do when she was reading, so I just started reading. It was great. Um, so our, our son, he, he, was, he was actually planning to audition for this school play recently, and, and personally, I hear the name of the play, and I'm like, you know, that's not really a story that I want my son to play a part in. And it was like the Lord just convicted me like that. It was like, woo! And, uh, and, and you know, dad trying to control the story God has for son. You know, I bet that's none of you in here, right? Um, but then I start looking up the story uh, in more depth. And, and we start talking about the story. It has some of these cool characters in it. And the story is a story about how friendships develop and identity is solidified through the positive influences of these friendships. A story that we would all like our kids to be a part of, right? And so I start reading about this, and on Friday, he gets, we, we find out after, you know, the, the casting call comes out, and, and he gets the part that he wants to play in the middle school play, and it was a joyous evening for us all. You know, that's, that's so literally speaking for us, that's not always the case for us, is it? We don't always get to play part of the story that we wish that we could play a part of, do we? We find ourselves in these other parts of the grand story that we wish we weren't in. Stories of toxicity and abuse and neglect, stories of addictions, stories where we feel like we're stuck in life, and sometimes stories of even self-absorption, if you're anything like me. And we end up either sucked up into these smaller stories because of our relationships or other times because of our own choices as we think they might give us the most meaning in this world. No matter where you find yourself uh, this morning, um, sorry, that little clip was bothering me. Um, anyway, no matter where you find yourself this morning and in, in, as you think about the story that you're in and the part that you're playing, I want you to know this, that there is one true story in the world of which our lives play part of. It's the story of redemption in Jesus. And this story has power to heal every other small, pain-filled, embarrassing part of our own stories. Paul says this in, in verse seven of what we're looking at today, that, that living in this story produces grace and peace in our hearts and in our lives. But we've settled for much smaller stories that do not produce grace and peace in our hearts and in our lives. So what's the story that's shaping the culture around us today? It is a modernistic story that says we must create meaning from scratch through our own personal lives and ambitions and ultimately conquer what fate has dealt us in this fallen world all on our own. And if we, if we take part in this smaller story, we're, we're not only forced to write the script for ourselves, but also to star in the leading role, aren't we? And where does that leave us, friends? 
exhausted, burned out, and hopeless. All places that the Lord never intended for us to be. All because we're finding ourselves in a story that's not too big, but far too small. The story that God has for us is a story with um, a story about a sovereign God of the universe that is in control of all. And today we're going to explore this true story of the whole world, and we're going to ask ourselves, what part has God called me to play in it? What does this obedience from faith, as Romans chapter one verse five, mean for me in this season? In this story, in which every other good story that we've ever reveled in finds its essence is a big story uh, that came along long before any of us ever graced the face of the earth and will continue likely much longer than we will be here. And we all have a part that only we can play in that story. So here's our big idea for today as we dig in. God has written us into his gospel story of redemption and called us to play a part in the renewal of all things. So here's what we're gonna look at today. This idea that we are called into God's larger gospel story. It's, it's, it's what Paul is eager to write about to these Romans here. Um, and and, and the, the true story of the Bible says that there's this one true story of the world, one in which we all have inherited and now uh, play a, uh, have a part that only we can play in it. Now, the outline today is gonna follow this idea of a gospel kind of plot line for us. Paul makes some assumptions about what his readers know about the history of God's people. I don't think that those are assumptions that we can make today, to be honest with you. And so I'm gonna spend a little bit more time talking about the history of the story that each and every one of you that considers yourself to be a follower of Christ was born into because it really helps for us to know about the story that we're in and the God of that story who's with us in that story and directing that story because it helps us to know how to walk faithfully today. So what's the plot of this gospel story? Let's, let's look at this right here. Let me show you the big picture of where we're going today. This is kind of the outline. I'm gonna be walking through this. There is a prequel. There is, there is something that happened before anything happened that we can see. Uh, and that is the fact that the gospel has always been plan A for God. Uh, act one, act two, creation and fall, those will be familiar pieces and features for you if you've been around the church for long, but we cannot assume them, friends. And then there's this idea of redemption, how it's been initiated throughout eternity past in the history of God's people about who accomplished redemption for us and what it looks like for redemption to be applied to our lives today. And that day that we all look forward to where redemption is consummated and sin and the effects of sin are no more in our lives. So that's where we are going today, friends. Let's look at this prequel. The gospel is plan A. Because God is the author of the story and he never lies and his will is always accomplished, we have to start with him. The true story of the whole world does not start with you or me. That is not a story that you're gonna hear when you walk out here. You're going to hear it starts with you and it ends with you. But friends, the true story of the whole world starts with God. Our story is God's story. He's the one who always was, 
who always is and who always will be. And that story that we're in starts with God who wrote the story before he ever made anything. And he sovereignly wrote us into this gospel story of redemption in Jesus before anything else. I think most of the time we hear about the gospel, which is the, the good news of the, the life, death, and bur- uh, burial and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us. That's what the gospel is. I think we hear about that and we think, oh, I'm so thankful God responded to our sinfulness. We think that that's what the gospel is, is it's a response to kind of rescue us last second. No, friends, Ephesians chapter one, verse four says this. Listen to this. Um, Even as in him, he chose us before the foundation of the world. So we can can, uh, take a cursory look over this and miss the whole thing. This is huge. God chose, if you're in Christ, God chose you in Jesus before the foundation of the world. Well, sin didn't enter the world until there was a foundation for the world for sin to enter. God planned before he created anything to choose you in Christ. Jesus, friends, was always the plan for the redemption of our stories. Doesn't that give you great comfort to know that you can't mess up what God has written for you? Even in Revelation 13, 8, this isn't on the screen, it says that the book of life was written before the foundation of the world through the lamb that was slain. God always planned to murder his son for the forgiveness of our sins. We were written into that story before the story was ever seen by anyone because God has always been and the story is about God. The gospel has been God's plan A from the beginning of time. And this means that God is sovereign, he's in control of everything that's come at us in this story that we find ourselves today. There's nothing that you have gotten yourself into that God did not know about and does not have control over and that Jesus cannot rescue you from. That's the good news of the prequel of the story. Before anything was, God planned to rescue us from the dominion of darkness. And that is not a feature of the modern worldview, is it? No, it's not about this God who is sovereign over all. It's about these people who are sovereign over themselves. And we all know what that gets us into, this despair and unending hopelessness where we try to find meaning in life out of these much, much smaller stories. So before the beginning of time, God planned to choose us in him. Then God creates the world, creation, act one. This is where we typically start in the story. And then if if you've been around here long, this is something you've heard us talk about often, but I don't wanna make that assumption today. Uh, In Genesis one and two, we see that this idea Uh, that we come forth as image bearers of God. And that word for image bearers is this this word uh, that that we get the word icon from. So if you think about what an icon is or an emblem, if I showed you like on a sporting jersey, I showed you this little swoosh, this little check, you would think, oh, Nike, right? Just do it, right? You would think, you you would get what it means. Well, icons, we are images of the one true God and we all reflect him uniquely. The scriptures say that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're all unique uh, to be unique image bearers, to tell the story, to reveal who God is all extremely uniquely. And that's what, that's the part that he's called you to play is to live out of your unique design that he has stamped on you in the domain that he has called you to live it out within. 
That's God's plan for our lives, right? He made us distinctly male and female, as the scriptures tell, tell us, complementing one another uh, in design and living in fellowship with God and one another. Not only that, Genesis says that he's given us unique dominion and authority over all the other creation, right? He has called us to rule and to reign under his sovereign plan because we reflect him. That's the story that he began to write in creation. Well, the story that he continued to write, not that he is, not that he is responsible for sin, but he is sovereign over our sinful decisions. The story continues with this fall, right? And this is act, this is act two. The enemy comes, this fallen angel, with his desire, as John 10, 10 says, to steal to kill and to destroy everything from these image bearers. And he comes to Adam in the garden. Adam, friends, is our covenantal representative as image bearers. This is a key feature for us to understand in the book of Romans. If we do not, if we see ourselves primarily as all standing on our own and not being represented by Adam in the garden, we will fail to understand what, G, what God has for us in Jesus through the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter four, he'll, and, and chapter five, he'll talk about how Jesus is the second Adam. If you don't believe that you are in the first Adam because you are an image bearer, Jesus will have little value to you as the second Adam, right? You won't, you won't understand what God has for you in that. So this is a key kind of feature for us to understand here. Adam is our covenantal representative. Adam withdraws in the garden and he doesn't engage and Eve does engage, and the enemy promises to give her something. Here's the crazy thing about what he promises to give her. It's something that she actually already has. It's the wildest thing. And, and he's convinced her of something so utterly broken that she is not like God. Does anyone remember what Genesis 3 says? I almost looked over it this week. Genesis 3, 5 says this. For God knows that when you eat of this, this fruit, the, the only one that he said, like the garden, the garden of Eden was a big capital Y-E-S, yes to everything, except this one little no, this one little no, do, do not eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And, uh, and, and the enemy comes in and he, and he pokes at that and he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the the, the interesting thing about this is that she took the bait uh, under the covenantal leadership of Adam, right? Because, because they are a unit together. They are one flesh. Uh, and she was convinced that she didn't have something that God had already given to her. She was already like God. She was made in his image. She wanted to be like God, but she already was. Uniquely made, full of his essence and being fearfully and wonderfully made. Friends, it's my experience that this is much of the human condition in the world today. We spend our times seeking to be someone that we already are. We are already like God, uniquely made, fiercely loved, and designed for beauty and dominion in this world. But sin has entered this world and totally destroyed and distorted every desire for our wholeness and flourishing, and there is no recovery without a Redeemer. Our covenantal representative, Adam, failed to lead, and thus every other image bearer that will follow the line of Adam, which is all of us, have failed and fallen therein. 
you and I are going to all experience the fall uniquely, and we have, and we know it, because we were all fearfully and wonderfully made. And this is the place where the story stops unless God chooses to move forward with us. In this covenantal brokenness of Adam and Eve, you know, this point that Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Now, some of us haven't gotten to that point in our lives yet. We don't really think that we're dead in our sins and trespasses. And so we don't look for a redeemer. We still try to squeeze life out of the smaller story with these secondary callings that we're trying to find our lives in. But for those who have truly seen ourselves as dead in our trespasses and sin, we see the beauty of what God is doing through Jesus. And this is where we pick up in Romans chapter one. That was the sermon before the sermon. Acts chapter three, or Act three. Redemption is initiated. Here's what we notice about the Apostle Paul is that uh, he is interested in putting the resurrection as the centerpiece of the story. Hear that. The Apostle Paul is interested in putting the resurrection at the centerpiece of the story. And so what do we see is we see that there's a story that leads us to the resurrection and there's a story that flows from that resurrection. Many of us are not as familiar with the story that has led to the resurrection, and so we thus look at Jesus and we say, I just want the story that flows from the resurrection. But if we don't understand the story that's led there, we'll have a much thinner and more narrow view of what God has actually been doing since the beginning of time. Um, And so here's what we see. We said that this is where the story ends unless God chooses to move forward, and he has to act out of his mercy and grace and move toward us. Um, unless he chooses to initiate, we, we don't have a future. Um, and so in his, loving, uh, in his loving care, immediately after sin distorts all of, his, all of his creation, the love of God, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? He moves toward broken humanity with a new promise. The Lord God, the one who always has been, is speaking consequences Uh, in the garden, in in Genesis chapter three, because grace enters the picture right after sin and the fall does. And and if you've been here for a while, you've heard me talk about this before, but I wanna go ahead and reiterate that today. In Genesis chapter three, uh, the Lord is dishing out the consequences for sin, for the decision. He's going to Adam, he's going to Eve, he's going to the serpent. He's going to all the parties involved because there is not such a thing as sinning and not having the consequences uh, given to you in God's economy. God is just, and so we see him acting out of his justice. He's still being gracious because he doesn't wipe Adam and Eve off the face of the planet. And, uh, and so here's what he does. He, he, he go, I'm just gonna summarize this. Um, he, uh, he, he goes, he goes and, he, and, he, and he gives a consequence to Adam, and he basically says this. Listen, um, you're gonna have a, a broken relationship with your work for the rest of your life. Um, and he talks about the thorns and thistles of the soil and how hard it's gonna be. And for women, he says, you know, you're gonna have a broken relationship with your family for the rest of your life unless grace enters in, right? Your, your, your desire is gonna be for your husband. There's gonna be pain in childbirth. And these are some of the consequences of the fall that he issues out in Genesis 3. But to the, the enemy, the enemy gets the worst news, the serpent does. Um, for Satan, he will be destroyed, Um, There will be no grace for the serpent, uh, for this fallen creature. There'll be an opportunity for grace for Adam and Eve, but not for this serpent. And uh, here's what Genesis 3.15 says, and this is kind of the theologians call this the 
uh, euangelion, which is the first gospel, right? The first gospel in the Bible does not come in the book of Matthew. No, it comes in Genesis chapter three. And here's what the Lord says and sets in motion. He says, I will put enmity, I'll make you enemies between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent here. And between your offspring, the offspring of the enemy, and her offspring, the offspring of Adam and Eve. And he, the offspring, uh, the offspring of, of uh, Adam and Eve, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, let me ask you this. What's a tougher blow to the head or to the heel? To the head, right? He's telling the story of what's eventually going to happen through the offspring of Adam and Eve, that Satan is once and uh, for all finally going to be destroyed through someone that will come through those two, through a descendant of Adam and Eve. And so uh, th this, is, this promise is ever on Paul's mind. Have you ever read Romans chapter 16, verse 20, that says this? It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Seems like he's tying it back into Genesis 3, right? Have you ever connected those two dots before? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In other words, what's he saying to the readers? He's saying that, that, that the promise is here, but it's not yet finished, right? The promise is here, victory is here, but it's not yet complete. It's not yet consummated. Romans chapter one, verses two and three. I'll read verse one to you to give us some context. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's what we talked about last week. And this gospel of God that he was set apart for, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who has descended from David according to the flesh. Paul is interested in tying this great story of redemption uh, into this church in Rome. And why? It's mostly a Gentile church. Isn't God just doing something brand new with the Gentiles? Didn't he just start over because the Jews wouldn't respond? No. And this is a significant teaching for us uh, to understand here. Because in the book of Romans, we're going to hear a lot about the relationship to the Jewish people and the Gentile people. And it has a lot that's bearing on our story today. And there's a lot of confusion around Israel and the church from many pulpits today. Spiritual Israel and the spiritual church are the same people, friends. What matters, as the scripture says, is a circumcision of the heart, is a baptism of the heart. Genesis 3.29 says, or Galatians 3.29 says this, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, your heirs according to the promise. That means that if you belong to Jesus, you are as Jewish as they come, friends. Did you know that? You are as chosen as they come, friends. If you understand this, then the Old Testament really matters in your story, doesn't it? That's your family story, not just those people. There is one name under heaven whereby men are saved, Acts chapter four, verse 12 says. And what is that name? Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every, every, every tongue will confess, right, eventually, and there's not going to be one Jewish person that's ever going to be saved that's not going to be saved through Jesus. So if you think there's two different stories, you have to go back and read the Bible because there's not. There's one story about God's redemptive love pursuing his people and saving us through Jesus, which was the plan before the foundation of the earth. So let me go back and ask you this question from Romans chapter 1, verse 2. 
What did God promise beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son? That's loaded. And what bearing does that have on your life today? Because that has a bearing on your life or Paul would not have written it. And we believe that every word is breathed out by God that's in this book that you hold. What bearing does the fact that God, these these promises that God gave to us beforehand through his prophets, what bearing does that have on your identity in Jesus and your calling today? We've said that we have this promise that the offspring of Eve would eventually crush the head of the enemy, right? It's a pro- and a promise is only as good as the one who's able to keep that promise. So throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we have an ever-expanding and wider-reaching evidence that this promise is getting closer and closer, right? And theologically, we call this idea the covenant of grace. And we think that it starts in Genesis chapter 3 because that's the first evidence and promise that God's going to be gracious to these fallen creatures that we find ourselves to be. So think of this covenant of grace like a rose. If you think about a rose, maybe some of you are the the kind of romantics. You get your your lady a bouquet of roses uh, on Valentine's Day, and you pay like six times what they normally are. It's okay. I still love you. And... um, and, and, and you don't pick out the roses that just have the little bud, like just barely sticking out where you can see a little color, right? No, you pick out the rose that's fully open and full of beauty. When we think about the covenant of grace, I want you to think about an ever-expanding rose that's opening as it gets more and more beautiful over time. Take that picture into these promises that we see stitched together throughout the Old Testament. So um, <clears throat> what we see is this. It's the same story over and over and over again. It's this story. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, it's theologically what we call this unilateral covenant, meaning that God has to do all the work for us to be his people. Like in the garden, we had the opportunity to stay with God. We blew that, right? Because Adam is our covenantal head. And so we, God has to come to us and keep coming to us and even give us the faith to believe that he has come to us, Right? And so we see this, we see him pursuing his people in the Older Testament. We see it in Abraham. So the Lord calls Abram, and this is redemption initiated, right? Lost as he is out of this foreign land and comes close to him and makes this promise to him that from his family, this great nation is going to be uh, born. And he confirms it with promises of provision and the sign and seal through that promise, which was circumcision. And he promises to make this people great. He, he promises to make a great nation out of this barren couple in their 90s, right? It's this, it's this wild story for us. And the scriptures say this, and Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness is the requirement to be in fellowship with God. He believed the Lord, God credited it to him as righteousness. It's the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament right there, okay? We need a t-shirt for that. Um, So the Lord is promising to save his people through the family that he will create from Abraham and Sarah, all by faith. They cannot make this first child to be born. They tried every way. Go back and listen to our series on Genesis for that. They tried to start this great nation on their own. And it gives us a picture, friends, of how powerful the gospel really is, that God gives us everything from nothing. That's the story of the gospels, the story of how this great nation Israel was born. And we go on from there and we see this covenant that God makes with Moses, continuing on in this covenant of grace. 
uh, the Lord uh, on Mount Sinai gives the law to Moses. Now, it's summarized in the Ten Commandments that we, that we often talk about, but it also includes uh, all of those laws that you see in the book of Leviticus, which we call the ceremonial laws uh, or the sacrificial laws. The ceremonial laws were given as a system uh, of, um, uh, basically a system of us to be able to be forgiven because blood had to be shed. And so there were these ceremonial rites that were accomplished and performed uh, that would lead to the forgiveness of God's people. But it was like a, this temporary kind of holding pattern that ultimately would point to the blood of Jesus, right? And there also was given this uh, civil law because Israel was a nation. It was like a, it was like a you know, a, a, it, it was not only um, a system of belief and theology, but it was also a great nation. So there were these, there were these laws that were given to govern the people. We no, we no longer have the ceremonial and the civil laws in place because, the, because Jesus has, has kind of overcome and he's, um, not overcome, he has, um, uh, he's, it's been fulfilled in Jesus, okay? And so, so we see that this law is given and the reason that the law was given from Galatians 3 says this, the law was given because of transgression. So we need the law in our lives to help us know and see grace. That was part of God's kindness moving toward the people of God, the rose ever expanding of this covenant of grace. Ultimately, the law was added to administer the covenant of grace more effectively to the people of God in the history of redemption. And then we move on to David. There's this covenant that's made with King David. Paul mentions it here in Romans 1, so we gotta talk about it. Uh, and it's this imperfect earthly King David who blows it big time and, and, and does it right big time in other ways, but he has this huge heart for God. The people long to see their leader. They wanted, all the other nations around them had a king they could see. The people of God wanted a king they could see. And so they begged him and begged him and begged him. He says, finally, you don't know what you're asking for, but I'll give it to you. Um, and, and, uh, and so the prophet Nathan speaks to David. David's the second king. Saul was the first king. Saul started out as a good king, ended up being a bad king. David's a better king. But here's what God says through Nathan to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16. You and your house, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. What do you think God means when he says forever? Does he mean forever? Yeah, he means forever, right? It's eternal. Your throne shall be established forever. So, so God is moving more and more towards his people. We're even getting the lineage of where this great Messiah that we're looking for that's gonna crush the head of the enemy is gonna come from. He's gotta be one of David's descendants. Have you ever wondered why two of the four gospels start with what? A genealogy, right? Because they gotta tie it back to Jesus. They gotta tie it back to David if Jesus is gonna be the Messiah, which is tied back to Moses, which is tied back to Abraham, which is tied back to that promise that was made in the garden. It's all our story, friends, of how God is moving closer to us. But not only that, he promises this new covenant, this new covenant, which for us is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Two passages real quick right here. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. Their hearts will be the tablets of stone that I write my law on. And I will be their God. There's that promise. And they shall be my people, because why? He's going to do the work. Ezekiel 36, similar promise. I will give you a new heart, because our old heart 
is dead, right? It's dead in sin. We, we can't just hear the good news and have these old hearts. It'll bounce right off, right? She says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'm gonna put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and you will get a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So just to summarize real quick, I'm just giving you the whole Old Testament in 30 minutes, all right? Just to summarize real quick, what has God promised to us, right? What, what is it that, that, that uh, the scriptures say, um, you know, concerning uh, uh, which he promised us beforehand through his prophets? What is it that he's promised us? Let me just summarize it for you real quick. He has promised by his power that Satan would be crushed by an image bearer of God and he would have to be fully human. That God would create a spiritual nation from absolute unbelief. That God would show us sin and what's necessary for forgiveness through the, through the law. That God would give us a king and his kingdom would never end. That God would put his spirit and his law within us and come close to our hearts. All so that he could be our God and we would be his people. Friends, the Old Testament and the New Testament are this unit telling this story. Do you see yourselves as part of this story? So you guys know where this is going, but I want to show you how it all hinges on the resurrection. We need a Savior who's both human and divine. We need him to be human because he has to fulfill all these promises or less God's a liar. We need him to be human because he has to obey perfectly because we failed so miserably. We need him to be human because the blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So whose blood is granting our forgiveness, right? We're not, we're not, we're not slaying goats anymore, right? We need blood to speak for us. We need his perfect life sacrificed on our half to speak for our disobedience, his perfect blood to cover our sinfulness, and his perfect priestly care to bear with us in every way because he knows what it's like to be tempted like we are. We need him to be divine because only God can live perfectly. Only God can show grace and mercy to us because it only exists in his character in this fallen world. And only God can make us righteous. And most importantly, only God can raise the dead, right? He must be fully human and he must be fully divine. Romans 1, 4 through 6 says this. I promise I'm getting ready to land the plane. He was declared, just work with me a little bit. I've preached the whole Old Testament 30 minutes. Give me a few more minutes here. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by what? His Resurrection, right? The whole thing is hinging on the resurrection. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace because of that resurrection and apostleship for Paul to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. The obedience of faith is our part in the story, friends, including you who are called to belong to Jesus. So the resurrection proves that he's the fulfillment of all of these promises, his resurrection opens the door for two things to come together for his children. A life based on faith and evidence and obedience, right? So a life based on faith, it all came from him. We love because what? He first loved us. The order matters. We said that last week. But it's evidence and obedience. It's a faith that, 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 um, 
It's a faith that, that, that stands alone, like, like it is a faith that it is a gift from God, but it's a, it's a faith that's evidenced in our obedience. Um, and so what, what we see here is that, that Paul, Paul says we're called to bring about the obedience of faith. That, that, that faith in our lives is actually taking us on a journey of transformation through Jesus that's going to have an either, even bigger impact than just our own stories. I think a lot of times we think about personal obedience and we think about us just standing before God and us and saying, hey God, look, I did what you asked me to do. Your obedience has a far greater reaching um, impact than you could ever imagine, right? Think about the, the stories in the scripture about people who chose to disobey and the implications of that, how it destroyed total families and nations. Think about the impact of your obedience of faith that God is calling you to. You have no idea what God wants to do through your obedience. And it all stems from faith, though. He's always the source of it because he's the source, source of faith. And this is our part in the story that only we can play. It's empowered by his spirit. Uh, so we're not just saved, we're called. And we're not just called to be good, we're called into the obedience of his mission of resurrection-empowered obedience for the sake, as Paul says, of the nations. So this redemption applied in our lives is living out this obedience of faith, right? Um, our part, what is our part? What do we need to live out our part of the story that God has for us? What does Paul say? Grace. Grace is what we need to live out our part in the story. Verse five says that we have received grace. Friends, in order to live out our part, we have to receive grace. Paul says the key to playing our part in the story is that we never forget that we were first and foremost recipients of grace. Our identity as these recipients of grace is that we are like this beautiful church in Rome that he says in verse seven, who are loved by God and called to be saints. If you're in Christ, that's who you are. You are loved by God, and you are called to be saints, not just these old Catholic saints that you hear about, like real, present, spirit-empowered and filled saints that walk about Lawrenceville and Gwinnett County. You are saints because you're in Christ. And that's the best news I can tell you today that you are already loved by God and you are already what you hope to become because of grace. And this is where we're at in this gospel story of redemption today. God is filling the world with saints that will walk about and live out of this obedience that he's called them to by faith. But there's this one final act in the plot that I just gotta mention to you because it's on the horizon for us all. It's this idea that redemption will eventually be consummated, it'll be finished. King Jesus has come and he's making all things new. That's what Revelation 21 tells us. But in this final act, he will rid the world of pain. He'll rid it of disease and death and injustice and every struggle that you will face that will try to call you into a smaller story this week. He'll rid the world of all of that confusion, all of that brokenness. And until that day, we live in the power of the resurrection that changed everything for Paul and it changes everything for us too. And we seek to extend grace and we pray that our faith will be evidenced uh, through faith-generated obedience for the sake of the redemption of not just ourselves, but the nations.
And we find ourselves playing a far bigger part in the story than we can ever imagine. So my question for you today is, what does that mean for you? What does it mean to look back at the story of God and to see that God chose you before he made anything? What does it mean for you to know that God has chased his people down, he's hunted them down, and bestowed upon them grace through, through sending his son for us? What does it mean for you that you are a saint that is filled with the resurrection power of the gospel as you walk about this week? What does it mean for you that one day all of the pain and brokenness will finally come to an end? How does that hit you today? Which story do you see yourself in today, friends? Let's pray together. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.